Now can I ask you to turn to Matthew's Gospel. We'll actually read two passages from the New Testament this evening. But first of all, just a few verses really from Matthew chapter 13, uh, beginning at verse 18. It's the, from the well-known parable of the sower. And just a reminder of what Jesus said by way of explanation of it. Matthew 13, verse 18. He said, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now further in the New Testament scriptures, the second reading is from 2 Timothy, and there chapter 4, and we'll read the whole of that chapter. Second Timothy chapter 4, which as you may know, may have been about the last thing that Paul wrote before his uh, probable execution and martyrdom. Second Timothy chapter 4, from the beginning. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, 
Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. One of the choruses that I was brought up on, 189 in the old CSSM chorus book, if any of you know that book, said, there's a fight to be fought and a race to be run, which are two images that come from this chapter that we've read, where Paul, near the end of his life, has this amazing a selection of different things that he writes about from the glories of heaven that he looks forward to, right down to bringing the cloaks and the parchments and all that sort of thing, the books, and, and, and comfort for him in the coldness of where he was. And we hear him saying in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. And that chorus was saying, there's a fight to be fought and a race to be run. There are dangers to meet by the way, which is actually the point that I want to take up now. And then it goes on, but the Lord is my light and the Lord is my life and the Lord is my strength and stay. And it speaks of perseverance in faith and discipleship. On his word I depend, he's my savior and friend and he tells me to trust and obey. But the fact that there are dangers by the way is illustrated by the words in the text that I want to bring to highlight uh, this evening, namely 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, where it refers to Demas. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. In this way, Demas is very different from the other friends and associates of Paul about whom we read in the pages of the New Testament. Once before, when I was here, we thought about Epaphroditus, as another of the many friends of the Apostle Paul, under the heading, as it were, of Paul's word when he said, honor such men. He described Epaphroditus as his brother, his fellow worker, and his fellow soldier, one who, he said, even risked his life for the service of Christ and his people. And Demas is also very different from the character that we considered this morning. Bartimaeus uh, probably started off not knowing a great deal about Jesus, but by the end of the story that we read, he could see and it says he followed Jesus on the way. 
Demas, by contrast, started off knowing about Christ and his gospel, and yet he fell away, going in the wrong direction altogether. And his story reminds us, among other things, that that not everything was success and glory for Paul. We'll come back to that point, but he had his disappointments, and here is one of them. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Michael Bond describes this last section of Second Timothy uh, as, as really what he calls a kaleidoscope of the church. And he says, Demas is actually a figure in most churches. Making the point that even if there's only a tiny amount of information about him, his story is here for our instruction, not, like, not in the sense of likes of Epaphroditus and the others of whom it might be said, let him be a lesson to you, but rather in this case, let him be a warning to you. And Paul says, he has deserted me. And as we think about this character, I I want to speak about the cause of his desertion, the effect of his desertion, and then, obviously, the lesson of his desertion. First, the cause of his desertion. And here it is stated very simply, because he loved this world. Here's Paul in imprisonment in Rome, in this section mentioning many names from the days of the early church, mostly people in whom he found great encouragement and fellowship, but Demas has deserted me. Gone to Thessalonica. I don't know if that was his hometown, maybe, but definitely he has deserted me, which indicates a kind of decline and downfall. I I suppose it's possible to theorize that Paul and Demas had had a disagreement which led them to part company, I suppose that's possible, as had happened, as we know, with Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, at one stage where they fell out over John Mark. You'll remember the story. But the way things are stated here, there seems to, it seems to imply that Demas had fallen away from an earlier commitment. And there are actually three references to Demas in Scripture. First of all, there's Philemon 24, verse 24 of Philemon where Paul sends greetings from Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So that's the first thing. He had been a fellow worker with Paul in the work of the gospel. And then there's Colossians 4.14, where it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And there it's just his name. In fact, I don't know if there may be a a contrast because he refers to Luke as beloved and then it's just Demas without any note about him at all. Although maybe that's reading too much into it. And then thirdly, we have this text, 2 Timothy 4 and 10, Demas has deserted me. So that's the, that's the kind of sequence of the three references. Demas, my fellow worker, just Demas, Demas, the deserter. Now, the question arises, I suppose, in all our minds, was he a backslider or does his decline show that he was never truly a believer in the first place? And I don't know. And I think we may reverently say God only knows, which is often all that we can say. 
and it's not for us to pass judgment on others in any case. Perhaps, perhaps he was a genuine believer who had just found the going tough and who slipped back. Or perhaps, we just don't know, perhaps his earlier profession of faith and involvement in Christian service was just an outward thing. And maybe he never really was converted, but was somehow just swept along. And sometimes, well, I suppose we just have to be content with, we'll never know, not in this life. But he slipped back anyway. And what was the cause of it? Well, because he loved this world. And what's wrong with loving this world? Isn't it God's world? Doesn't the Bible tell us that he made everything? And doesn't it say that he has given us all things richly to enjoy? Doesn't it say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? And haven't we departed, you might say, from the old world-denying attitudes that suggest that you just, you just have to thole this world in hope of bliss in the life to come? And of course, all these things are true. But when it says Demas has loved this world, obviously that's not what it's getting at. And the word world can be used in different ways. If you were to look up a Bible dictionary, as I did, you would find reference to the word as God's, the world as God's creation, but also sometimes used for this fallen world in its rebellion against its maker. There's one, one of the Bible dictionaries talks about the fall and how the world has become, as a result, a disordered world. And it says very frequently in the New Testament, the word, it's the word cosmos, has a sinister significance. It is not the world as God intended it to be, but this world set over against God, following its own wisdom and living by the light of its own reason. Accordingly, worldliness is the enthronement of something other than God as the supreme object of man's interests and affections. Pleasures and occupations not necessarily wrong in themselves become so when an all-absorbing attention is paid to them. That's one dictionary definition. And if we were to look over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, just a bit further on, 1 John 2, 15, we find perhaps the plainest statement of that theme where it says, do not love the world. It just says it plainly, do not love the world. And that's obviously very different from the sense of the word in a phrase like the best known text of them all about God so loved the world that he gave his son. But it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And then further in 1 John, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's Demas. That's just what had happened in his heart and life. And that's why I read that other passage about the, the parable of the sower and Jesus' word about how it all applies. He would be represented by the seed sown among thorns in the famous parable. Some seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plant. And Jesus explained it as we read, Matthew 13, 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word 
and it proves unfruitful. That's how it was with Demas. We don't know how he first heard the word, but he did, and he seemed at first, apparently, to be responding to it and going on in the way of discipleship. But then the love of this world choked that seed. He loved the things of this world more than he loved the Lord. And that is one of the dangers to meet by the way. That the things of this world, good and innocent as they may be, should become the most important things for us. Now, it's a matter of balance, isn't it? Surely God does not want that kind of world-denying commitment that turns its back on everything connected with this world. The late Professor MacLeod, Donald MacLeod, once had an article in the record, it was, actually on religious and mental issues. And he wrote about the fact, first of all, that religion, as he put it, uh, often attracts people with personality disorders, and how that's, in fact, one of the glories of the church, that some people can and should be able to find within the church a welcome and support that they may not be able to find anywhere else. But it was in that context that he also referred to what he called a negative attitude to culture and suggests that some of the some exaggerated descriptions have been given of people who were converted and then, and, and he was actually referring to the infamous kind of uh, uh, reputation of some of the, the highlands and the Western Isles especially, were encouraged to break their fiddles or burn their bagpipes, as if to imply that all of that sort of thing was of the devil and of the world. And he suggests, this is his word, we stigmatized ordinary recreational and cultural pursuits as if they led directly to hell, or at least conveyed the impression that people had to choose between culture and Christianity. Well, there are many good things in this world and many things in which Christians can take delight and happiness. But then, as, we, as we've been seeing, the other meaning of world is this world in its defiance of God. Dimas allowed that kind of love of the world to take over and to lead him away from Christ. That was his tragedy. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And in deserting Paul, as is clearly implied, he was deserting the Lord, turning his back on his earlier commitment to the Lord and his truth. The deceitfulness of riches was the other thing that Jesus mentioned as something that chokes the word, the deceitfulness of riches, which is a very telling phrase, isn't it? Because wealth offers so much, but it's a deceiver. It just doesn't bring the satisfaction and pleasure that it promises. And we know, of course we know, that nothing wrong with being wealthy. There is nothing wrong with being wealthy, but there is something very dangerous about being wealthy. Namely, that we allow it to take over and become the be-all and end-all of our life. Let me illustrate that in several ways. Some years ago, there were two Ethiopian church leaders who visited Great Britain. And afterwards, one of them commented, I am saddened to hear 
that European churches are getting weaker while the churches planted by Europeans are getting stronger. And then when people are too well secured and well paid, they give less time for the relationship with God and are less dependent on him. And that's an interesting comment, isn't it? Coming from another culture on our culture. Being wealthy is not sinful, but it is dangerous. At the end of the 19th century, there was a European wrestling champion called Yusuf Ismail, and his nickname in the wrestling world, he was called the Terrible Turk. He became European champion, and then he made for the United States to take on the American champion, who was known as Strangler Lewis. He used to win, apparently, by putting his arm around his opponent's neck and then pumping up his biceps so that the guy could hardly breathe and had to surrender. But according to the report, the the strangler had a problem with the terrible Turk because the terrible Turk had no neck. He just went straight from his head to his shoulders. And so he couldn't do it. And the Turk won. And then he demanded what then was $5,000 in prize money in gold, which he put in the, you know, the, the belt, the championship belt that he had, uh, he had earned and boarded a ship called the SS Bourgogne for Europe. But halfway across the Atlantic, the ship sank and Yusuf went down with that gold strapped in his waist and sinking so very quickly that, that the lifeboat was not able to get to him. And again, wealth seemed to offer so much. But what's the phrase there in Jesus' words? The deceitfulness of riches. And thirdly, to illustrate this, bringing in some words from the well-known James Denny, and it's actually a tremendously challenging word for us today. I don't know if that's large enough to read, but he, he, what he said was, can anyone deny that the mind of Christ about money and the mind of the ordinary Christian about money are worlds apart. The one thing most of us are afraid of is to be poor. The one thing which he really dreaded for people was to be rich. Is there any of us who, if he had the opportunity to become rich, would decline it because he was risking his soul? There's a tremendously challenging word. Is there anybody, any of us, who, if he had the opportunity to become rich but realized that it was going to be a danger to his soul, would actually turn it down? Anyway, Demas' story, short as it is, is a challenge to us. Are we allowing the world, in that sense, to lead us away, lead us away from Christ, to have a worldly attitude is to replace, to relegate Christ to somewhere further down our scale of priorities. And so often it's not like that people like Demas would suddenly turn violently against Christ, nothing like that at all. It's just that the, the standards of the world, the insidious effect of worldliness, especially as it's spread now by wall-to-wall broadcasting, bear bad fruit. Is it happening? Are the standards of the world in that sense seeping into our thinking and decision-making 
Do we allow the standards of Christ and the word to become somehow smudged and blurred in our thinking so that things that we would once have rejected as worldly and unworthy have somehow crept back into our lives again? These are challenging questions, all arising from the sad truth about Demas, the deserter. The New Living Translation has it, because he loves the things of this world. New English Bible, because his heart was set on this world. And the ESV, actually, perhaps best of all, it, it, it's, it's the word for, for this age, he, he talks about being in love with this present world. Perhaps that's best of all. It's literally having loved the now age. That's the actual literal reading of the words. Having loved the now age. And that's in contrast to what is revealed in verse 8, where Paul himself was anticipating the end of his own life. And he says, the time for my departure has come. And we don't know for sure what happened at the end of Paul's life. It's not recorded in the New Testament, but he was looking back and he can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Tempting to, to delay on that threefold statement, but, but then in verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Quite a contrast. Demas, who has lowered his horizon to the things of this world, and Paul, who, as we might say, is looking at higher things, to the things not of this age at all, but of the age to come, that time when the Lord will come again and will take his own to be with him forever. So much for the cause of his desertion. Let me refer more briefly to the effect of his desertion, by which I mean the effect on Paul himself. And you can't miss the note of sadness and sorrow in Paul's reference to Demas, this man who was once a fellow worker and then just a person, and now Demas who has deserted me, in contrast with some others who are with me, as he says here. Contrast with Mark, let's say, that one-time failure who had made good and who, he, Paul now says, is useful to me for ministry. I once fell out with my friend Barnabas over John Mark, but Barnabas was right, and I'm thrilled, he might say, that Paul, that, that, that John Mark has come back to a place of real commitment to the Lord and his service. There were encouragements for Paul. Of course there were, but Demas was a big disappointment. It's not just that he has left the church, but he has deserted me. And of course, Demas would have to answer to the Lord for himself, but Paul felt it deeply. Paul was, we know, a dynamo of a man. He engaged with lots and lots of people in the course of his ministry, but he cared about each individual, and the defection of Demas was a sad blow to him. He was not made of wood, and he didn't have a wooden heart. And it's an interesting, and maybe even in a kind of a way, encouraging thing 
in, in the fact, I mean, that even Paul had such disappointments. We might have been inclined to think that anybody that had had the, the privilege of being an associate of Paul's, anyone who had been a fellow worker with the great apostle, anybody who'd had the opportunity to learn from him would be sure to go on and go forward in Christian discipleship. We might have thought so. But then that parable that the master told would warn us that there always will be different responses to the sowing of the gospel seed. There will always be the good soil, of course, but there will also also be the seed falling on the wayside, on the rocky ground, and among thorns. And that may be at least some consolation, in a way, for those who have seen the same thing happen, whether among friends, family, or whoever. There will always be disappointments. And it's not that that should lessen the concern or lessen our efforts to recall those who have drifted. But if Paul had such disappointments, maybe it's hardly surprising if lesser mortals should suffer similar disappointments. And of course, everybody has to make their own choice. And everybody will have to answer for themselves in the end of the day for the choices that they make. Remember the so-called rich young ruler who came to Jesus with that most basic question of all, what must I do to gain eternal life? The most important question, and you know how Jesus, well, he started by referring him to the commandments and then challenged him about giving up his possessions because he was very rich to follow Jesus. How would he react to that? Would he be prepared to do that, to make that sacrifice for the sake of commitment to Christ? Well, Matthew 19.22 tells us, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He had it, and he wasn't prepared to part company with it. He was attracted to Jesus. He wanted to gain eternal life. He maybe wanted to become a follower of Jesus, I don't know, but he didn't want any of these things that much. And what happened? He walked away. And Jesus let him go. He didn't call him back and say, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe I've set the bar too high. Let, come back and we'll discuss this and see if we can come to some kind of compromise. Nothing like that at all. Just let him go. He had a choice to make and he made it the wrong way. And, well, as they say, you can't win them all. We will never win them all. And again, I don't mean any of that should suggest uh, any complacency on the part of Christian witnesses, Christians who are called to be witnesses, as if we should just shrug our shoulders and not care whether other people come to believe in Christ and commit themselves to him. That is not the point at all. But maybe some kind of consolation that we aren't the first or the only people to face such disappointments. There have always been false professions. People say it about, um, you know, mass evangelism, big, big rallies and so on. What about all the many people that, that went forward, but then they, they, there was no reality and they fell away? Or in our, I suppose, Presbyterian tradition of people making public profession of faith, 
Some people have stood up and associated themselves with the church and assented to belief in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord, as everybody has done who is a member of the church, made the promises and so on, and yet they've fallen away and, much to our disappointment, are nowhere spiritually. It is a great disappointment, just as it was for Paul when he records, I wonder if maybe with almost like a tear in his eye, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. The cause of his desertion and the effect of his desertion, and of course the other thing is the lesson of his desertion, but then we've really been talking about that all along, really. The challenge to make sure that ours is not a flash-in-the-pan commitment to Christ, not just an outward profession while we really love the world and the things of this world more than we love the Lord. We're to watch out for the little things because it's the little things that can start us on the wrong road. C.S. Lewis spoke of how good and evil, an interesting illustration that he made, both good and evil both increase at compound interest. If you remember from, I suppose, school lessons, the difference between simple interest, where the interest is added to the, cap- the original capital sum, and compound interest, in which the interest is applied in an always accruing way. And that's why, he said, that is why the little decisions that you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Dimas may have allowed such apparently trivial indulgences in his life, and the result was disaster. As we've said, we we don't know the state of his heart, really, and whether he was a true believer in the first place, only God knows that. And the Bible does teach us, of course, that those who are truly his are kept forever. They are safe in his hand, and Jesus himself said, no one can pluck them out of my hand. You can't lose salvation once you are truly his. But Demas yielded to temptation and worldliness took over until he made shipwreck of his faith. That's actually another image, isn't it, that Paul used in 1 Timothy 1, where he referred to some who have rejected the faith and conscience and so made shipwreck of their faith. There is a fight to be fought and a race to be run, there are dangers to meet by the way. The Good News Bible translation of the text says Demas fell in love with this present world. Well, this is a good world. This is God's creation. But our first love is to be for him. And we're to watch out for the encroachments of the world in that other sense of the fallen world that would lead us away from him. This this, this wonderful Lord who actually loves us. Do you know how the Apostle Paul would say that very thing 
in amazement about his own life. I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How wonderful is that, Paul would say, and so would say any believer, the Son of God who actually loved me and gave himself for me. And so we are encouraged to trust in him and to continue in his way, not allowing anything to hinder or to pull us back from that commitment to him and to the one who is able to keep from falling those who are committed to him. Amen. And let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for all that is to be learned from the many people who are mentioned in the pages of Scripture. For this man, Demas, we thank you for what we learn as we think about his life and his desertion of the apostle and falling away from whatever commitment he had because he had fallen in love with this world. Oh, Lord, we thank you that in one sense the world is a great place and a wonderful place, and you have given us all things richly to enjoy in this world. But we remember that other sense in which the world is a world in rebellion against you, its maker. And Lord, we pray that you would save us from that kind of worldliness and that rather we may seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Seek to please you and serve you in all our ways and to glorify your name forever. Hear our prayers, Lord. We thank you for your word. May it bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.